Hello, this is Brian Cam, and you are listening to Clear Story, a podcast in which I discuss texts and other art forms that I'm interested in. Typically, this is prose and poetry, but today I'm going to start by discussing a film. That film is Wings of Desire, as it's called in English. In German, it is called Der Himmel über Berlin, which is a rather different title that you might render as The Heavens Over Berlin or The Skies Over Berlin. It was released in 1987, and it was directed by Wim Wenders, whom I had the pleasure of seeing speak about the film at the BFI Southbank in London on Saturday, the 26th of June. Apparently, that Q&A is going to be posted on the BFI's YouTube channel, and I would recommend watching it if you have any interest in this film. If you have not seen this film, I would highly recommend it. It is an incredibly beautiful film, and one that I just love, actually. I saw it for the first time in 2009 at Somerset House in London, and that was when they were doing outdoor screenings of films, kind of at twilight, dusk kind of time. It was an absolutely transcendental experience, because if you know the film, you'll know that much of it is about the sky and the city. (laughs) And so to be in London and watching that film against the sky, because it was projected up high, to have birds landing on top of the screen was a pretty phenomenal experience. This is only the second time that I've seen the film, and I cried a lot during it, especially at the end. I don't like to spoil films, so I'm not going to say too much about the plot of the film. And the film is not so plot-based anyway. As Vendors said in his Q&A, the film is place-driven, not story-driven. And the BFI handout that they gave compared it to films like Man with a Movie Camera from 1929, directed by Giga Viertov, and Berlin Alexanderplatz, a 1931 film that was adapted from a novel, I believe. I have neither read the novel nor seen that film, actually, but it's one that I'm quite interested in seeing. So, as I said, I'm not going to ruin this film experience by telling you what it's all about. You're just going to have to see it. And now is a good time to see it, because in 2017 and 2018, this film was restored into something very similar to the original vision that Wim Wenders had alongside his cinematographer, Henri Alekan, who was quite a significant cinematographer. He worked with Jean Cocteau on Beauty and the Beast, or La Belle et la Bête, in 1946. He also shot Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn in 1953, which is a film by William Wyler, who is also one of my favorite directors. So he's quite a significant cinematographer. And the story is quite moving because he shot this film with vendors and they shot it in black and white and they shot other sequences in color, as you'll know if you've seen the film. Now, in the 80s, these were two different chemical processes. And so to get black and white to be projected alongside color film required all kinds of transitions, apparently six generations of transitions. And this affected the quality of the black and white film. And apparently Wim Wenders was okay with 
that quality and it was released in 1987. He won Best Director for this film at Cannes. He had won the Palme d'Or, the sort of most prestigious prize at Cannes, a few years earlier in 1984 for what's possibly his most famous film, Paris, Texas. Another fantastic film, and I would love to talk about that at some other point. But the point is that Ali Khan was never happy with Wings of Desire as it was released. And he died in 2001 at the age of 92, I believe. And so it feels like vendors had this in his mind that once the technology was available to redo this from the original negatives, that he would do this. And that is indeed what happened in the past few years. Wings of Desire is now out in theaters in London, and I would recommend seeing it. Now, I'm going to do something unconventional and potentially ill-advised. Since February, I have been doing Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, which is a book from the 90s framed as a 12-week self-guided creative recovery course, which is supposed to help blocked creatives or blocked artists to regain confidence. And I did that with an amazing group of people in London. I'm still continuing with that practice that you may have heard of, which is from The Artist's Way, called Morning Pages. And the reason I say this is potentially ill-advised is that Cameron says you're not supposed to share these morning pages. But in this case, this one was from the heart, and I just thought I would read it on this podcast. So this is my reflection the day after I saw Wings of Desire and heard Vim Vendors, the director of that film, speak about it. Vendors was phenomenal. I cried a lot. It's about the eternity, the unmanifested source behind both hemispheres. And for anything to be beautiful, it must exist. To exist is to be beautiful, already aesthetic. But for either, it must be made manifest, which is a violent wrenching away from the Tao, the unmanifest, the infinite. So everything beautiful is violent. As a friend of mine said, pain is beautiful and beauty is painful because to be beautiful is to be an individual and to be an individual aborts all of the other infinite possibilities. This is as true of every perception and every choice, whether to take a sip of coffee as whether an entire people survives an ice age or whether a child is stillborn or quick, for both are manifestations, all are manifestations, and therefore all negate the infinite, the infinite via negativa of the divine, and all are beautiful. Every word I write, and every stroke of every letter, negates every other, and the others are always necessarily infinite. If the double life of Veronica shows that other life, lived if we are born a mere 1,500 kilometers from where we were born, namely the distance from Warsaw to Paris, then Wings of Desire is about the infinite negations in every individuation. Every choice kills off an infinite number of universes, so everything that exists, which is necessarily individuated, must do violence to the divine, to eternity, to the infinite possibilities, and yet, without individuation, the divine could not be beautiful. The film draws attention to the negative and that every manifestation is beautiful, even this one. So that was one of three pages I wrote the day after seeing this film. 
And if you've seen the film, you will know that the contrast is between the divine and the mortal. But I won't say any more about that. Instead, I will talk a little bit about how I'm thinking about the relationship between the universal and the individual at the moment. Some of this thinking is coming from Ian McGilchrist, born about 1953 and still living, who wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary in 2009. He's got a new book out, which I have not read, called The Matter with Things. So I'm going to read you a section from chapter 11, Romanticism and the Industrial Revolution. And again, this is from The Master and His Emissary. For the romantic mind, by contrast, theory was not something abstracted from experience and separate from it, based on representation, but present in the act of perception. There was therefore no question of applying theory to life, since phenomena themselves were the source of theory. Fact and theory, like particular and universal, were not opposites. According to Goethe, they are not only intimately connected, but interpenetrate one another. The particular represents the universal, not as a dream and shadow, but as a momentarily living manifestation of the inscrutable. The particular metaphorizes the universal. Goethe deplored the tendency for us, like children, that go round the back of a mirror to see what's there, to try to find a reality behind the particularity of the archetypal phenomenon. Now, this passage of McGilchrist I find fascinating. One is this idea that the particular metaphorizes the universal. You may know that the root of metaphor is something like to carry a cross in Latin, and that comes straight from ancient Greek, where the sense is more a transference of ownership. So a metaphor is carrying a cross or transferring ownership. There's a sense in both of those that you're bringing something from one domain to another. And this is what Goethe and McGilchrist are saying the relationship between the particular and the universal is. And that means that something is being transferred from the universal and infinite into the particular. Now, this is a very old debate. The medieval scholastic philosophers were very interested in this question. And the question is... If most knowledge resides in abstract knowledge or universal knowledge or knowledge about classes of things, categories, then given that we only ever experience individual sensations and phenomena, how does that connect? I'm not going to go much deeper on that today. But this relationship between the particular and the universal is a very old question in Western philosophy. And I got really interested in both of the things that McGilchrist cites here. One is, according to Goethe, they are not only intimately connected, that is, the universal and particular are intimately connected, but they interpenetrate one another. So I thought, where does he get this actually? And I have not actually found it in Goethe. I think he cites a philosopher named Ernst Cassurer, who was active in the first part of the 20th century. He was born in 1874 and died in 1945. And after his death, there's a book called The Problem of Knowledge that came out in 1950. So I went digging in Cassurer to find this quote about Goethe. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, whom you may know most likely these days for his poetry, 
was born 1749 and died 1832. But he did a lot else besides his poetry. And if you're German, you're probably slapping your forehead at my terrible introduction of Goethe. But it is probably less known that he was one of those polymaths who had a lot of natural philosophy. He was was a scientist, I think we would say today, and very interested in experience and phenomena. Now, this is Cassirer describing Goethe, and he's saying that Goethe has a kind of different view than the rest of science, and it was only now, as in, I guess, the 1940s, that science was coming to appreciate Goethe's insights. So here's Cassirer in The Problem of Knowledge, 1950. Science has been gradually learning to see Goethe's fundamental concepts with his own eyes, instead of measuring them by the standards of others. There are two dangers here that must be carefully avoided. It is customary either to regard his theory as a thesis in natural philosophy that rests almost wholly on speculative grounds, or to seek its meaning and value in the purely empirical. Goethe was as little a natural philosopher in the sense of Schelling, however, as he was an empiricist after the fashion of Darwin. There prevails in his writing a relationship of the particular to the universal, such as can hardly be found elsewhere in the history of philosophy or of natural science. It was his firm conviction that the particular and the universal are not only intimately connected, but that they interpenetrate one another. The factual and the theoretical were not opposite poles to him, but only two expressions and factors of a unified and irreducible relation. This is one of the basic maxims in his view of nature. The highest thing would be, he said, to realize everything factual as being itself theoretical. The blue of the sky reveals the fundamental law of chromatics. Look not only for something behind the phenomena, for these are themselves the theory. This sounds like the language of a strict empiricist who might be satisfied with a simple description of phenomena and not raise any questions as to their causes. Yet on the other hand, there was for Goethe no experience that stands entirely by itself and is to be regarded as a detached entity. Time is governed by the oscillations of a pendulum. The moral and scientific worlds by oscillations between ideas and experience. So you can perhaps see how I'm linking my understanding of Wim Wenders' The Wings of Desire, which contrasts the eternal and the divine to the individual life. Eternal life is undifferentiated by necessity. It cannot exist in the here and now. Anything that exists is impermanent and only a manifestation of some larger pattern. The pattern can never be seen in the individual, and yet they are interdependent. They interpenetrate one another, because without the individual, there would be no pattern to recognize. And that relationship between the divine and the mortal, and what I mean by divine is that eternal pattern of nature, That's a view that would be compatible with Spinoza, the idea that God and nature are one, and nature is a pattern. That might be a stretch of Spinoza. I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I'm going to leave it there for now. 
the divine has a relationship to the mortal that is similar to the relationship between theory and fact, or between species and individual, or between clade, which is a group of species, and species. And I will be coming back to those relationships in later podcasts. So I wanted to go to this idea that McGilchrist cites that Goethe does not like the attitude of trying to go behind phenomena, which he sees as like children going round the back of a mirror. And so I tracked that one down. That is from a conversation with Goethe by Johann Peter Eckermann, who had a series of conversations with Goethe when Goethe was quite old. So as I've said, Goethe was born in 1749 and died in 1832. This conversation is from 1829, so three years before his death. Eckermann was born 1792, died 1854. This is just to give you an idea of when he's thinking and writing. So Goethe and Eckermann are having these conversations. This is from February the 18th of 1829. And he is writing in a journal in what gets eventually published as this book about a conversation he has just had. We talked of the theory of colors and among other things about drinking glasses, the dull figures on which appear yellow against the light and blue against the dark and therefore allow the observation of a primitive phenomenon. The highest which man can attain in these matters, said Goethe on this occasion, is astonishment. If the primary phenomenon causes this, let him be satisfied. More it cannot bring, and he should forbear to seek for anything further behind it. Here is the limit. But the sight of a primitive phenomenon is generally not enough for people. They think... They must go still further, and are thus like children who, after peeping into a mirror, turn it round directly to see what is on the other side. This idea of trying to go behind the mirror is a fascinating one because everything we experience is phenomena. That's kind of the definition of a phenomenon, right? An appearance within experience. The taste of coffee, the sound of someone cutting down trees as people have been doing this morning and delaying me from recording this and I want to talk a little bit about that as well because I think it connects somehow now I've spoken about the relationship between the universal and the particular the divine and the mortal and I also want to discuss the relationship between consciousness and the contents of consciousness so if you've done any meditation And in particular, if you've taken Sam Harris's Waking Up course, you may be familiar with some of these ideas. And I think some of this is probably also compatible with some of the views held by Aniel Seth in his book, Being You, which came out last year and which is about consciousness. And this is the idea that consciousness is kind of unchanging. It seems like it's almost a bit binary, like either it's on or it's off. And the contents of consciousness, the experiences that you have, can be more or less vivid on that stage of consciousness, as Harris likes to put it. But consciousness itself has this eternal aspect to it. If you've done meditation and you've gotten to this kind of witnessing stage or this place where you can neutrally observe things arising, then you may have an experience of what it feels like to be almost paying attention to consciousness. 
And the Buddhists would say, with their doctrine of anatta, or no-self, sometimes called the no-self doctrine, that this is sort of a, an aspect of this, which is that within experience, we can taste the coffee, and it's apparently us that is tasting the coffee. But if you look really closely, it's more like just taste of coffee is arising. And there's also a relationship arising, but the self is arising in relation to that experience. And it's not the same self that arises in relation to other experiences. For example, if you take a sip of coffee, you taste the coffee, there's a sense in which you are tasting the coffee. But let's say you hear a power tool, like a chainsaw, which I've been suffering through this morning, and branches falling. Now the chainsaw sound comes into your ears and there's a sense in which you are experiencing it. But the point here is that the you that tastes the coffee does not somehow seem identical to the you that hears the sound. And there's another kind of insight you can have when there's something very annoying like that, which is that if the kind of naive view of self were true, if I were hearing a sound and getting annoyed by it as we commonly speak, then there would be some kind of intervention where I make that decision or something in me makes that decision. And so I would hear the sound and then get annoyed. In fact, when you pay attention to the experience, usually the annoyance comes in at the same time as the sound. Or sometimes you even feel the annoyance before you're consciously aware that it is a sound annoying, quote unquote, you. And so I think this is the Buddhist insight or one way of looking at it, which is that rather than saying the sound arises and then I judge it to be annoying and then annoyance arises as a result of my judgment, it's more like the sound arises, the illusion of self arises, and the annoyance arise all simultaneously. So the sound, the sensation of annoyance, and I myself as an experiencing individual all come into existence in tandem with each other. And yet there is a consciousness that underlies all of that, assuming we are functionally conscious and not in deep sleep or in a coma or blacked out or whatever. So there's this kind of basis of consciousness, which seems to be kind of eternal and unchanging. Now, I can only speak from my own experience, which is to say that I started meditating five or six years ago, and since then I have experienced more of this kind of non-judgmental space of awareness than I did prior to the year 2018, let's say, when I got really into meditation. So if all this sounds like crazy nonsense, then I hope you'll forgive me for indulging myself in this long monologue. But I think there is something in this, which is that in a sense, there's nothing behind the primary phenomenon. You see the light and there's just the light. You can put judgments on top of it, but you can't in some sense find something behind it. To some degree, science can, but those scientific concepts that go behind light or sound or color are themselves sort of built on top of what's already there. Science is dependent on observation. If you can't observe anything, then it's kind of not in the domain of science. And so even if, you know, we end up making these observations with instruments, they still require phenomena. They still require experience. 
Now, how does this relate to the individuation of the eternal? I think that what's so beautiful about Wings of Desire is that it shows that there's always a choice, which is to remain detached and floating above in a kind of non-judgmental space of consciousness, of awareness. But in order to be affected by the world and to engage in the world, to take action in the world, one needs to inhabit an individual space. And there's something fundamentally tragic about individuation, about every single choice, because it cuts off every other choice. Every time we make a choice to be in one place and not another, we have actually not just chosen between two places, we've really chosen between something that is truly infinite, which is that by sitting here recording for you now, I am not anywhere else in the world and cannot be. So I am here now. And there's something beautiful about that manifestation, about this connection, this moment. Speaking about consciousness in this way tends to make people more conscious <laughs> to the degree that Julian Jaynes, whom some of you may know I'm a bit obsessed with, thinks that there may be a selection effect in consciousness, that we think we are always highly conscious or in this state of high metacognitive awareness. Because by consciousness, he does not mean mere awareness. He means something more like this sensation of floating above Berlin or your life or yourself or two choices that are put before you. This sense of high awareness, that's what he means by consciousness. And he thinks that one reason we might think that we're always conscious when in fact we may be walking or cooking or on transport or writing an email. But in those states, it's not that we're purely necessarily in a flow state, but it's that we in fact are not in a highly metacognitive state in those positions. And that that state of heightened metacognition might not be normal. It seems like it's always on, but one reason it may seem like it's always on is because whenever we check to see if it's on, it is on. Does that make any sense? So it would be like, let's say you've got a room that has an automatic light switch that's movement-based. And so every time you open the door, the light is on in that room. You might conclude that the light is just always on in that room, even when it's actually only on when you open the door. And speaking about consciousness in this way, as well as meditating, as well as seeing a film like Wings of Desire or reading parts of Goethe, these are ways of opening a door. And it may be, as I sort of agree with Jane's, that this is a fairly new function of the brain, and it used to operate differently. But that gets us into a whole other bag of worms, and I've recorded for long enough, so I am going to read you a poem now. This poem is called Love Constant Beyond Death. It was published in 1648, and it's by Francisco de Cavado, 1580 to 1645. The poem was published three years after his death. And I would read you the Spanish, but my Spanish is not great, and I'm a bit tired. So I'm just going to read you the English translation, which was done by Margaret Joel Costa. Love Constant Beyond Death by Francisco de Cavado. Though my eyes be closed by the final shadow that sweeps me off on the blank white day, and thus my soul be rendered up by fawning time, 
to hastening death. Yet memory will not abandon love on the shore where it first burned. My flame can swim through coldest water and will not bend to laws severe. Soul that was prisoned to a god, veins that fueled such fire, marrow that gloriously burned, the body they will leave, though not its cares, ash they will be, but filled with meaning, dust they will be, but dust in love. So as always, thank you for listening. And I know I promised last time that I would be doing some conversations, and this is kind of the opposite of that. It's a very long monologue, but I hope you enjoyed it. And I will have some conversations coming up, including a live conversation this Saturday, 2nd of July at 8 p.m. BST, UK time. And that is with the historian and podcaster Sam Biagetti, whose podcast I'm a big fan of. And I highly encourage you to listen to the podcast, which is called Historian Splaining. And I will leave it there. I am Brian Cam. You can reach me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Brian Cam, B-R-Y-A-N-K-A-M, as in Mike. And I hope to hear from you soon.